You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, we are deep in our study of the Gospel of John in chapter 21, and we're very deep into chapter 21, so if you have your Bibles, please open them and turn them to John chapter 21. We'll begin reading in verse 12, and we'll read through the end of verse 23. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Peter, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love, thee, love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one also who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we need your help in understanding your word We are grateful for it. We are grateful for its clarity, but we know that we need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to be our our comforter, our guide, and our teacher. And we know that when your word is rightly preached, your voice is truly heard. So we pray that today you would help us to hear the voice of of the Spirit of God in this text and to take heed to those things that we ought to be warned of and to receive counsel and comfort from your word. That is our desire and pray that we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth today. All those who are yours, and in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When we were last together, we got all all the way through the end of verse 17, and we are looking at the seventh appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. This is the third appearance to the disciples as a group. It is the fourth appearance that John records. It has been accompanied by a miraculous catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee. There was a breakfast that the disciples had with Jesus. There are seven disciples there. And after mentioning those seven disciples at the beginning of this chapter, John only focuses in on Peter, who seems to be the the central focus of all that transpires around this. Um, Not just uh, Peter plays a predominant role in uh, not only the catch of fish and his response to it, but also in the conversation that he had with Jesus, where his love and the reality of his love and the measure of his love was questioned and examined by Jesus in front of all of the other of these disciples. And the goal of that seems to have been that, uh, Peter's love would be affirmed publicly three times, just as his denial of Jesus was publicly professed three times. 
And in doing so, Peter was restored to that position of leadership and ministry and trust among the disciples. And then we reach this quite odd prediction of Peter's death that begins in verse 18 and the response of Peter and John to that that take us through the end of verse 23. And that's going to be our focus this morning. And at first glance, the the logical the logic of this transition between Peter, do, do you love me? And Peter, here's how you're going to die. The, the logical transition between those two things doesn't seem apparent on the surface of it. And you may ask, how do you get from Peter, do you love me? Then feed my lambs to Peter, you're going to die, so follow me. There seems to be no break between verse 17 and 18. And so I would suggest to you that the, the transition is, is this. Having professed publicly that he is going to, uh, that he loves Jesus three times, Jesus is then going to show to Peter, yes, you do love me, and here is going to be the evidence of the reality of your love. You're going to die. And you're going to die for me, and so follow me. And that is, in essence, the, uh, the, the proclamation of the gospel call. We are to lay down our lives for Christ and expect to do so. And so, having expected that, we are to follow Jesus. And that is the cost that we ought to be willing to pay in following Jesus. So, that, that's the sort of the connection here. Peter professes his love for Jesus. Peter would demonstrate his love for Jesus. This one who cowered away from uh, professing Christ and being acknowledged as being one of, who belongs to Christ, that one who cowered for his own safety and security would in the future end up laying down that very life that he at one time lied to protect. He would end up laying down that very life in service to the Master. The Lord whom he denied, he would eventually die for. And that seems to be the connection. So we're going to notice three things here. We're going to notice a prediction by Jesus, a question by Peter, and then a correction from John. A prediction by Jesus, then a question by Peter, and then a correction that John offers to us. So let's look first at the prediction by Jesus in verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. There's intentional contrast in verse 18 between uh, Peter's conduct as a young man and Peter's conduct as an older man. And actually, there are two things that are contrasted. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself. And that refers to the action of, of putting a belt around the waist of one who was wearing a robe or a, a, long, uh, a long tunic of sorts. They would uh, gird up, pull the, the robe up a little high, as it were, and put a belt around and bind it around their waist so that they would be able to move more freely without tripping over a robe. And that's what that's referring to. You could refer to it. You could kind of translate that as dressing. When you were young, you used to dress yourself. And when you were young, you used to go wherever you wished. As a fisherman, you decide you want to pick up and go to Jerusalem. You pick up and you go to Jerusalem. You're in Jerusalem. You decide you want to stay two weeks or one week, whatever whatever it is that you make a decision to stay in Jerusalem. You stay that long. And when you're ready to leave, you get up and you leave. When you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted to. But Peter, there will come a time when you are older that you will not dress yourself. Somebody else will bind you or gird you. And somebody else will take you where you do not wish to go. And by this, Jesus was signifying the manner of Peter's death. He is prophesying here regarding how it is that Peter was going to die. When he was an older man, Peter would end up being tied up by somebody else, and he would have his hands stretched out, and then he would be taken or carried wherever it was that he did not want to go. That indicates to us that Peter's death, when it came to Peter, it would not be something that Peter would willingly do. It would not be something that he would enjoy doing. It's not, not, not something that he wanted to do. Peter ended up going to death quite willingly as a, as a martyr in one sense, but it was not something that Peter would have chosen. It was not what he wanted. 
In other words, Peter, this is going to be against your will. Somebody else is going to take over. They're going to tie you up. They're going to take you where you do not want to go. And by this, John says in verse 19, Jesus was signifying the manner in which Peter was going to die. According to tradition, Peter was executed by crucifixion. It is Tertullian who lived from 155 to 240 A.D., who tells us that the Apostle Peter died as a result of being crucified under the persecution of Nero somewhere between 63 and 65 or 66 A.D. It is Eusebius, who was a historian in the early church, who recorded a lot of the details of the early church, who said that Peter was crucified upside down, not right side up, at Peter's own request, because he did not want to die as his Lord died, because Peter viewed himself as not worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus died. Now, both of those statements, that Jesus died by crucifixion and that he died hanging upside down uh, with his feet in the air, as it were, both of those are given to us by tradition or church history, not by scripture. So ultimately, we do not know for sure exactly how Peter died because both Tertullian and Eusebius could have it wrong. And we not necessarily have any reason to believe that they had it wrong, but they could, and we need to keep that in mind. However it was that Peter died, if it indeed was by crucifixion and if it indeed was being crucified upside down, that is what Jesus is describing when he says to Peter that your hands will be stretched out. That was, in fact, a euphemism, a euphemism in that day for crucifixion. So it seems as if crucifixion would definitely uh, carry the details of, of uh, that crucifixion would fulfill the details of this prediction by Jesus in verse 18. So when Jesus says that someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go and stretch out Peter's hands, that was probably a reference to the way in which Peter would die. But what I want you to know or it is, a, it is a reference to the way in which Peter would die, probably by crucifixion. But what is significant to note is what Jesus knows about and reveals about the death of Peter. Jesus knew when Peter would die, when you are old, and he knew the manner in which Peter would die, that he would die by, by have his hands being stretched out, likely crucifixion. Now, Peter at this time was probably in his late 30s, early 40s, uh, relatively a, a middle-aged man even for that day, John probably much younger than, than John was uh, quite possibly the youngest of the disciples at the time. Um, so Peter was in his late 30s, probably early the 40s, and he would not die for another 30 years. But sometime, as I said, between 63 and 66 A.D., the persecution by Nero started in 63, and Peter was executed under Nero's persecution. So Peter still had 30 years in which he would serve the Lord. At this time, he is somewhere about halfway between his birth and his death. And that's what Jesus is kind of indicating when he says, when you were young, it was this way. And when you're old, it's going to be this way. And Peter was somewhere in the middle. Jesus knew as the sovereign shepherd and the sovereign savior, he knew exactly when it was that Peter would die. It wasn't left up to a chance or happenstance as to when Peter would be executed. And further, Jesus knew the manner of Peter's death, that he would have his hands stretched out. Again, a euphemism for crucifixion. He would have his hands stretched out and be carried where he did not want to go. The sovereign shepherd knew the timing and the means of the death of his disciple. And he knew this, by the way, before Peter was ever born. And he knew this, by the way, before he ever created a single Adam. And if he knew this of Peter, guess whom else he knows that of? You and me. Jesus Christ knows the exact day and the exact hour that you will die. It is written in his book. Psalm 139 says, All the days that you ordained for me were written in a book before there was yet even one of them. So he knows the day of our death and the hour of our death. And though he has not revealed it to you, he knows the exact manner of your death. 
whether you're going to die in a car accident or a stroke or a sudden heart attack or whether it is going to be as a result of a long and prolonged, a long, prolonged agonizing sickness of some sort. He knows all of those details. Now, is that comforting to you? You say, well, Jim, the thought of dying as a result of a long, prolonged sickness is an agonizing sickness is not comforting to me. But the fact that he knows exactly what he has appointed for me is of great comfort to me. And it ought to be. J.C. Ryle said this, It is an unspeakable consolation to remember that our whole future is known and forearranged by Christ. That he knows when I will die, and when I will die, and where I will die, and how I will die, and who might cause me to die, and under what circumstances I will die, and whether it will be quick, or whether it will be slow, or whether it will be night, or whether it will be day. That he knows all of that ahead of time. And that he, by his grace and his love and his wisdom, have arranged all of those things concerning me. That is of unspeakable comfort. Because Ryle goes on to say this, Everything from beginning to end is foreseen, arranged by one who is too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. Listen to that. He is too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. So it is a great consolation that he knows exactly how each one of us and when each one of us is going to die. Have you given any thought as to how you want to die? Not, I'm not talking about the, the method, right? Gun to the back of the head, a sudden car accident, uh, in your sleep, quietly. That's how I want to go, right? An asphyxiation or something like that. And I'm not talking about that. But the manner, how it is that you will die. The manner. How will, how will you approach death? How will you handle death when it is upon you? How will you handle death when it is near? Have you given thought to these things? I never did until a few years ago when I was reading through a two-volume work by Ian Murray on the life of, of uh, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And when I say two volumes, I mean volumes, like two of them. They were this thick. Over a thousand pages on the life of, of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the preacher at Westminster Chapel in, uh, in London during the early to mid-1900s. And he, Lloyd-Jones I died, uh, died somewhere around 1980, I think, uh, in that neighborhood, if I remember right. And in that final chapter, just reading through how it is that Lloyd-Jones died, and I'm not going to spoil it for you so you can read it yourself, just in reading through how it is that Lloyd-Jones died, it brought me to tears, and I said to myself when I got done with that book, that's how I want to die. That's it. Because he died to the glory of God. And he died in a magnificent way, and he handled it with magnificent grace. So have you given any thought as to how it is that you want to die? And will you glorify God in that death? Because I cannot control the why or the when or the how or the where of my death. I'm not in control of that. That is not appointed or ordained by me. But I can purpose in this life up to this time that I will glorify God when it comes, however it might come. Whatever He has appointed for me, I can, I can at least approach that with the intention that I will use it to the glory of God. Because I only get to die once. Only one time. You'll, I only get one shot at it. And there's no do-overs. When I'm done, if I've handled it poorly and I haven't glorified God in it, I can't go back and do it all over again. I only get to die once. And so we ought to, at least in this life, purpose that if we have, have, if we have intended to live for the glory of God, that we can also die for the glory of God. And there is a way in which we can die for the glory of God. We can die for the glory of God if we are at, at least expecting and looking forward to death and anticipating it. It does not glorify God, and I don't mean like goody-goody, I don't mean that kind of expectation, but... It is glorifying to God when we, when we look to the future with the recognition that this life is coming to an end. 
And God may give me 50 years. He may give me 50 days. I may have 50 minutes. I don't know any of that. But I can at least look forward to it and say, I'm not going to deny that it's coming. I'm not going to refuse to talk about it. I'm not going to try and pretend like it's never going to happen. I, I am anticipating it. I am expecting it. I am I'm going to talk openly about it. I am going to prepare myself for it. And I am prepared at every minute of every day to meet him if today might be the day. I can glorify God in that way of living under the constant realization that every day is a day lived in the shadow of death. Every day is. Not just when I'm sick and on my deathbed. That's not just the shadow of death. The shadow of death is every single day that I live in this world knowing that this day could be my last. And I can glorify God in my death death, if I purpose at this moment and at this day, at this very time, that whatever he has appointed to me, I will honor him in it and I will endure it. If it means suffering, then I will suffer gladly under that, whatever he has appointed. Maybe it is a long, prolonged, agonizing sickness that lasts over the course of months. But I can purpose at the outset of that, that in the midst of that, I will endure it for his namesake and I will endure it for his glory. I may groan under that, but I will not grumble under that. And there's a difference between those two. I won't complain in the midst of that. It may be difficult, but I can purpose now and today that even in looking forward to it, that I will endure whatever it is that he has appointed for me, knowing that he is too wise to err and too loving to do me harm. And I can glorify God in my death by testifying to the gospel of God's grace in the midst of it and the comfort that I receive and the glory that is to follow and the sustaining grace of my Savior in the midst of all of that. That's how we would honor God in our death. And without telling you how Martin Lloyd-Jones died, he did all three of those things. He expected it. He endured it. He testified to the grace of the Savior in the midst of it. That is how we can glorify God in the midst of our death. And so if you give him thought to how it is that you're going to glorify God in your death. Look what Jesus says to Peter after telling Peter, you're going to suffer. It's going to be painful. It's not going to be something you wish or wanted. This is how you're going to die. Somebody else is going to gird you and stretch out your hands and take you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now does that sound like a gospel presentation that you've ever heard anybody give ever? This is going to cost you your life, and so follow me. Peter, you're going to die for me, and so follow me. That is a gospel presentation that you will not hear from uh, Rick Warren or Joel Osteen or any one of probably 90% of the churches that clutter the landscape of this nation. You will not hear a gospel presentation like that. This is going to cost you your life, so be willing to give it up, and now follow me. And, G- and Pete Jesus is talking here to Peter about discipleship. That's what he's describing. In Matthew chapter 10, and by the way, this is the call of the gospel. I want to give you a couple of references to, to illustrate that. This is what the gospel calls us to. The gospel calls us to self-sacrificing, sacrificial, giving it all up, being willing to die for him, even if that is what is necessary. Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16:24 and 26. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And in understanding that God owns us in our life, in our living, and in our death, the Apostle Paul could write in Romans 14, verse 8, For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That's what I'm talking about. If we have one life to live, we have no problem saying that 
we ought to live it for the glory of Christ. Well, we have one death to die. We ought to at least purpose that if it is, if it remains at least within our ability to anticipate that and to, to do anything in the midst of it, that we will die for His glory as well. Whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? That's how you, that's the attitude that you have. If you are facing death, if for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, whether I live or die, I live or die for the Lord. This is the call of the gospel. Not that in coming to Christ you get a better life and a better parking spot and a better wife and a better job or uh, graces and goodies in this life. That's not the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is you're going to die. And by the way, you're all going to die. So you might as well die for Christ, right? It's not like if you don't die for Christ that you can avoid dying. You're still going to die. On the same day, at the same time, in the same way as you normally would, if you lived your entire life for yourself and died your entire death for yourself, you're still going to be at the same day, in the same place, in the same time, and in the same way as otherwise. So if we have one death to die, let us purpose to die for the glory of God. This, he said, signifying by what type of death Peter was going to die. That's the prediction by Jesus. Now look at the question by Peter. The question by Peter in verse 20. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, that is the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Now, the man he's inquiring about is John, the author of this gospel. We've seen before and we've made the case in previous sermons on a number of times that the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who leaned back upon his breast at the Last Supper, was John the Apostle, one of the sons of Zebedee. And he was here at the at this appearance. And so Jesus and Peter, while they are talking and probably walking, Peter looked back and he saw John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, following in them. And Peter inquired about John. And so, Lord, what about this man? What about him? Now, there are a number of different ways that the question has been understood and taken. And there's really no agreement as to what Peter is doing here. But uh, let me describe to you how some have understood Peter's question. Some have understood Peter's question to just be an expression of inappropriate curiosity. Inappropriate curiosity. Right? This is Peter just, again, as some would suggest, this is Peter just, again, opening his mouth and slipping in his foot, or maybe both feet, and rather than embracing what Jesus has said and thinking about that, Peter's got to have his nose in everybody else's business and say the first thing that comes to his mind. And so this was an inappropriate curiosity. Peter had, Peter had no business knowing anything as pertained to John. He should have been concerned with what Jesus was revealing to him. And instead of being concerned with what Jesus was revealing to him, Peter's putting his nose into those hidden things that he has no business looking into. So his curiosity is understandable. He wants to know what might happen to other people. Jesus, if you're, if you're in the mood to start revealing the future, will tell us what's going to happen with John and Bartholomew and Nathaniel and Philip and, and the rest of them as well. Or it's possible that this is not inappropriate curiosity, but a latent form of jealousy. And some have suggested this, that Peter, having been the one who denied the Lord, the Lord is now revealing to Peter, the one who denied him, that he was going to suffer crucifixion and a painful and agonizing death sometime in the future. And so Peter had begun to reason, or so some suppose, Peter had begun to reason, well, if I'm going to suffer because of my denial, what does the one who does, had not denied him, what does he receive? So what about him? As in, Peter is comparing himself with John. What, what is John going to get off scot-free because he never denied you? Right? He was bold about it, and I get to be crucified because I denied you. Is this what I get for that? So what about him? What does he get? 
Does he at least get to suffer like I suffer? Or does he get off scot-free? Some have suggested that. Or some have suggested that this is just genuine curiosity by Peter, sorry, genuine concern by Peter for his brother John. They had been business partners for most of their lives. They had fished together. They had lived together. They had uh, been friends. They, now they had walked with Jesus for three years. And if one thing we see in John, if we see one thing in John's gospel about Peter and John, it is that, that these two men knew each other. They knew each other well. And they are together constantly in the gospel of John. It's Peter and John who are here this day fishing. It was Peter and John who went to the tomb. It was Peter and John who were together at the high priest's court and followed Jesus back from his arrest. Peter and John are always together in John's gospel. Why is that? Because they were good friends. So maybe this is just Peter expressing his concern for his brother John, concerned that John might have to suffer something as well. Maybe it is, maybe it is Peter saying, if this is the lot of those who follow you, and I, I can handle that, I can face this, I'm willing to die for you, I'm willing to follow you even if it is to death, but what about the others whom I love? Now, which is it? Is it an inappropriate curiosity? Is it a latent sense of jealousy? Or is it genuine concern for his brother? I don't think it's really jealousy. I think it is a combination of the other two. I think that Peter here is genuinely concerned for John. He does want to know that. And I don't think that... And he's not just strictly sticking his foot in his mouth. His concern for John is a genuine concern, but that concern for his brother John expresses itself inappropriately. And that is why Peter is rebuked. He does, because of his concern for John ask something that he shouldn't be asking. And that is, what about this other man? So that, I think, is what's going on. Now, can you sympathize somewhat with Peter's question or the genuine concern that he has? I can. Because I've thought through this in my mind. I'm quite willing to be persecuted. I'm quite willing to die for the Lord or to suffer whatever it is for his sake. I'm willing to do that, not because I think I have grace at this moment to do it, but because I know that in the moment that I am required to do it, I will have grace to do it. That I understand. So I'm willing to do that. But guess who I'm concerned about? My wife, my children, my friends, my fellow elders, you. That's who I'm concerned about. I can handle that, but I understand the concern on Peter's behalf. Fifty years from now, I probably won't be alive. But my kids and my grandkids will all be alive. And so there's a part of me that is very concerned with what might happen to them. Will they live in freedom? Will they be persecuted? Are their lives going to be filled with suffering and trials and temptations and, and toils? Are they going to enjoy the, a good life like I have enjoyed and, and peace in my time? Or is it going to be different for them? And so there's a part of me that worries about that and wishes that the Lord would reveal that to me. So I can sympathize with Peter's question, his genuine concern. But I need to embrace Jesus' rebuke. If he wills that somebody that I love suffers worse than me, what is that to me? My only concern really should be that I am willing to suffer whatever he asks of me. Right? So I can, I can sympathize with Peter's concern. I can even sympathize with Peter's question. And I probably would have asked the same question. In fact, I know I would have asked the same question in his situation out of his love for others. But if I can trust the Savior to give me grace and to keep me through whatever it is that he has appointed for me, I can also trust the Savior to give grace and keep through whatever he has appointed for my children and my wife and you and anybody else that I love. See, I have no problem trusting him to give me grace to endure that. It's trusting him to give everybody else grace to endure it. That's where my trust falls down. And so I can sympathize with Peter's concern. And Jesus' rebuke is one that you and I ought to wear and to uh, learn from. Have you ever thought, this is switching gears just a little bit because of everything that I've said is a bit heavy up till now. So let you breathe for just a second. Have you ever considered how gracious it is that God does not reveal the future to us? Have you ever thought of how gracious that is? 
I'm thankful. There are, there are times when I wish I knew the future, but only when they're about ready to draw a lottery ticket or something, then I wish I knew the future. But if it's not a lottery ticket, I'm actually quite thankful that I do not know what the future holds for me or for those that I love. Because knowing the future has a way of, of really casting a cloud over everything that I might be enjoying today. Let me give you an example. Uh, you, those of you who know me, I was going to say know me well, but even if you don't know me all that well, you know that I enjoy football. So during the football season, I record every game that is televised on, on the satellite. That's one game on Thursday night, four games on Sunday morning, one game on Sunday night, and a game on Monday night. And that's, I record every last one of those, and only those, if unless they bless us with a doubleheader on one of those nights, then I get to record another one. Now you said, you really spend that much time watching football. No, I don't, because of modern technology, I can watch four games in the time that normal people who watch it live only watch one game. So I can blast through and watch all of those games in the time that it would normally take me to just watch two games. But I record all of those. Now, I cannot tell you how much I hate knowing the outcome of a game before I watch it. I hate it with a hatred that burns with the white-hot heat of a thousand suns. I hate it. And why do I hate it? Because there's no joy in watching the game unfold if I know what the outcome of the game is ahead of time. Can you really take any joy or excitement in your team going up 21 to nothing in the first quarter if you know that they're going to lose 24 to 21 deep into overtime? Can you take any joy in that? No, so when your team scores that first touchdown, are you really happy? No, because you're thinking to yourself, they're going to lose. And when they score the second time in the first quarter, can you really have any joy? No, it was interesting curiosity, but they're going to lose, and you know that. And then they score the third time. They're up 21 to nothing. You should be rejoicing. You should be going in to get another batch of hot wings. You should be doing something else to, to enjoy the game, but you can't. Why? Because you know they're going to lose 24 to 21 deep into overtime because you know that your team's not going to score in the second quarter or the third quarter or the fourth quarter or miserably even in overtime. So when you could have been enjoying, you could have been enjoying those three touchdowns in the first quarter. You can enjoy none of them. Why? Because you know the outcome of the game. If you knew today that tragedy would strike you next Sunday, would you enjoy anything for the next seven days? Would you enjoy any of it? Every delight that you have, every pleasure that you have, every good thing that ought to fill your heart with joy and wonder for God is going to be overshadowed by the reality that all of this is going to come crashing down in seven days. It is such a grace that God does not tell us what the future holds. Now you say, if that is true, then why then did he reveal it to Peter? Right? Why Peter? Because in Peter's situation, I don't think that knowing the future was a cause of, of discouragement to him. In Peter's case, knowing what would come was a cause of great encouragement to him. And here's why. He had just denied the Lord three times. And what has been the question at hand? Do you love me, Peter? And Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? Willing to sacrifice the agape, sacrificial, all on the table type love. Peter, do you have that for me? Lord, you know that I phileo you. I have affection for you. Different word. Remember that? Peter, do you agape me? Lord, you know that I phileo you. Twice Jesus asked him, do you have that sacrificial love, Peter? The third time, Peter, do you really phileo me? Do you have that fond affection? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know that I have that affection for you. And so Jesus comes back to demonstrate that he does know all things. Yes, Peter, that is the state of your love now. But I've asked you twice, do you agape me? Do you, do you have sacrificial love for me? I've asked you twice that. But Peter, here's what the future holds for you. You're going to demonstrate agape love in the future. See, that would be a great encouragement to Peter, wouldn't it? 
that his phileo love would eventually become an agape love and he would lay it all on the line for his master and die for his master. Peter, knowing the future outcome of his own death and how he would die and that he would glorify God in it, would be not a cause of discouragement, but a cause of great encouragement for him. For us, knowing the future would be discouragement to us because knowing future pains and disappointments would rob us of present joys. J.C. Ryle says this, and I've quoted Ryle a lot this morning only because he had a a lot of great things to say on this passage, but J.C. Ryle says this, After all, we must take care that we do not omit the special point of our Lord's words. What our Lord rebukes is not general concern about the souls of others, but over-anxiety and restless curiosity about the future of our friends. Such over-anxiety indicates a want of faith. We ought to be willing to leave their future in God's hands. To know their future would, in all probability, not make us one jot more happy. I can imagine nothing more miserable than to see in the distance tribulation and sorrow coming on our friends and not be able to avert it. Of what use would it have been to Peter to know that his beloved brother John would one day be cast into a cauldron of boiling oil at Ephesus during the persecution? What good would it have done Peter to know that John would spend years of weary captivity on the Isle of Patmos and finally outlive all the company of the apostles and be left last and latest on the stormy sea of this turbulous world To know all this would not have done Peter the slightest good and would likely have added to his own sorrow. Those are good words. To know the future of what might befall us would do us no good, but it would add to our sorrow. So God in His grace keeps those things hidden from us. So it is not ours to worry about where or when or how we will die. It is ours to purpose this, that when we are called upon to die, we will do so for the glory of God. That is what He calls us. So that's the question by Peter. Now look at the correction by John in verse 23. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple, that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? Now, John here in that verse, in that statement, demonstrates that he was aware that there was an urban legend of sorts circulating amongst the brethren, other Christians, that the Lord had promised that John would not die. But that is not what the Lord promised, and John is correcting that here. Um, J.C. Ryle in his commentary mentions a man named Theophlacht. I hope that's how it's pronounced. If it's not, he's not going to say anything because he's been dead for 900 years. Theophlacht of Orid, who lived from 1055 to 1107, uh, he was a commentator on Scripture, and in connection with this passage, he mentioned, and this is around the year 1000, that there was a tradition that some people believed that the Apostle John was still alive, even in 1000 A.D., and that he was kept supernaturally alive somewhere, sort of in a suspended state of non-aging, and that he would be alive until the Lord returns. That was circulating around 1000. Well, back in John's day, the word got out, probably by the other disciples accurately reporting what was said and what was meant. It got mistook to mean that John would never die and that Jesus would come back before John died. But John is here correcting us. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was only saying to Peter, what business is it of yours if I will that John should remain until I return? Think of it in these terms. Peter, what business is it to you if I should will that you die by crucifixion and then six hours after your death I return before anything can happen to John? What business is that of yours? If I should ask you to glorify me through this death as suffering, uh, as anxious and of, as painful as it might be, what business is it to you if just a little while longer I should return before John suffers anything? Now, see, that's the question that 
all of us should ask ourselves too, right? What if I should die a suffering, a miserable, anxious, painful, long death? But God wills that somebody else should die quickly in their sleep. What business is that of mine? If the sovereign shepherd has determined that I should die one way and somebody else should die another way, that's in his hands, is it not? That's the whole point of the passage. Our life is in his hands. The disposing of it, everything that happens in the midst of it, it's all in his hands. And so the question really is, can we trust him in the midst of that? Are we willing to trust him in the midst of it? Not can we trust him, we can, because he is trustworthy. But are we willing to trust him in the midst of that and to leave that up to him? And so this passage is one that we should return to in the future when we are tempted to worry about our loved ones, when we are tempted to worry about ourselves and what the future may hold, and to be reminded that God is gracious in not telling us what the future holds, but he calls us to follow him. That's the call of the gospel. Follow me. You say, Jim, that might result in me dying. You're right, it might. But you're going to die anyway. I hate to be the one to break that to you. But we're all going to die anyway. So if we are to die, we might as well die for him, right? That should be our heart. That should be our willingness. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us as your people. You have graced us with lives that are blessed in so many ways. You have blessed us to live in this nation at this time. You have called us to be in this place at this time. You have given to us the grace of of life and now of salvation, that you have turned our hearts to you. It is the joy of your people to trust in the sovereign shepherd who died for us that that we might live, who gave his life so that we might have eternal life. And we can trust you to finish that good work which you have begun in us and to take us safely to the foot of your throne to give you praise and glory forevermore. And we look forward to that. We pray that you would give to us grace to be able to trust the future to you, not only for ourselves, but also for our loved ones. And to be constantly reminded that our times are in your hands. You are the one who has written every day of ours before there was yet one of them. And that applies to every person around us and everyone that we love. So give us grace, we pray, to trust you for all of these things and in all of these circumstances. That you would be glorified in your church and to your people. And that you may be exalted as your people trust in you. We pray that if it is within our means and, and our ability that when the time comes that you would give to us grace to glorify you in our death, however that might happen. To expect it, to anticipate it, to endure whatever it is that you have appointed to us and to testify of the gospel of God's grace in the midst of it. Help us not to see our death as something that is the end of our glory to you, but a process by which we can bring you great glory. We have lived for your glory. We pray that you give us grace to die for your glory. In the name of Christ our King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.